0: Welcome to another UCTV.tv podcast presented by University of California Television. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to this uh, event that I think will be absolutely magical tonight. This is going to be a lot of fun uh, for all of us, and we've had a great response. We had 307 people RSVP for this, so, terrific uh, response to hear our speakers tonight. So let me now move to introduction of of our distinguished speakers, Mayor Kevin Johnson and Ms. Michelle Ree. So elected in November of 2008, Kevin Johnson is the 55th mayor of Sacramento and the first African American to serve in that office. Mayor Johnson, who is a native of Sacramento, strongly believes that in order to be a great city, we must have great schools and he's committed to identifying ways to strategically drive education reform. During the first two years of his administration, Mayor Johnson has accomplished a number of uh, objectives to ensure all Sacramento students have the opportunity to attend excellent public schools. In addition to creating a formal partnership uh, between the city and area school districts and hosting four major education summits, Mayor Johnson serves as co-chair for U.S. Secretary of Education Arne Duncan's mayor mayor's advisory council and chair of the US Conference of Mayors task force on public education. <laughs> Michelle Ree is the founder and CEO of Students First, a national education reform organization now headquartered in Sacramento. Michelle, welcome to Sacramento. <laughs> Students First is guided by Michelle's core vision to put students first. She's been working for the last 18 years to give, stu- to give children the skills and knowledge they'll need to compete in a changing world. Through her own experience in the classroom as a Teach for America Corps member in a Harlem Park community school in Baltimore City, she gained tremendous respect for the hard work that teachers do every day. And in 1997, Ms. Rhee founded the New Teacher Project to bring more excellent teachers to the classroom across the country. On June 12, 2007, Mayor Adrian Fenty of Washington, DC appointed Chancellor Rhee to lead the District of Columbia Public Schools, a school district serving more than 47,000 students in 123 schools. Under her leadership, the worst performing school district in the country became the only major city system to see double-digit gains in both their state reading and state math scores in 7th, 8th, and 10th grade over a three-year period. Michelle currently serves on the advisory boards for the National Council on Teacher Quality, the National Center for Alternative Certification, and Project REACH of the University of Phoenix School of Education. She has a bachelor's degree in government from Cornell University, which is also my alma mater, and a Master's in Public Policy from Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. So I know I speak for all of us when I say we're delighted to have both Mayor Johnson and Ms. Rhee here participating in this distinguished speaker event tonight. So please join me in welcoming Mayor Kevin Johnson and Michelle Rhee. Thank you. Well, I've got a a series of of questions that I'm eager to ask uh, our two speakers tonight. So let me start off uh, with two themes. I'd like to talk about um, the why of organizational change. In other words, what is it that, uh, what influence in your lives have led you to be uh, leaders of organizational change? And the second theme I'd like to explore is the how. In other words, how have you uh, succeeded in leading organizational change uh, efforts and what are the principles and guidelines that that the two of you have used uh, as leaders for organizational change? It's really fascinating to to observe their their careers. They've uh, worked in two sectors, namely uh, uh, government and public education, where organizational change is often difficult. Uh, often uh, uh, many uh, lots of uh, organizational inertia that that occurs in these in these (laughs) sectors But both uh, the mayor and Ms. Ree have been extraordinarily successful. Dean, she was smart enough to get out and I'm still (laughs) stuck in. (laughs) (laughs) They've been both extraordinarily successful in in leading uh, organizational change efforts and that's really what we want to uh, to talk about tonight. And and I also want to say a, a special thanks to the two of them uh... if i'm if i'm not mistaken this is the first time that they have appeared together in sacramento at a speaking event so this is uh, the first time that they're that the dynamic duo is together on the stage so let's thank them for that uh. okay well ladies first so let's begin with michelle Michelle, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, your background um, and uh, what, what values did your parents instill in you that led you to be interested in public education uh, and to try to in- improve it? And it's especially interesting to, to hear your thoughts about your commitment to public education but if, because, in fact, much of your own personal experience has been in private education. So can you tell us a little bit about the, the evolution of your commitment to public education?
1: Sure. so I uh, was incredibly fortunate growing up uh, starting from seventh grade, attended uh, private schools was uh, went to a country day school where there were probably 15 kids in a class. Uh, in, in my entire grade there were 55 students and that was the largest group ever to go through uh, the school. It was an incredibly nurturing environment, very, very rigorous. Uh, you know, you hear lots of stories about people who felt ill-prepared for college. Uh, I felt sort of over-prepared for college <laughs> in lots of ways. Um, and But probably what was interesting was the fact that my father, who was a physician, uh, was very different from most Korean men of his generation and that he was very sort of socially and civic-minded. And so he used to tell us all the time when we were growing up, you know, everything that you have and everything that you've accomplished is not because you're special at all or talented, it's because you happen to have been lucky enough to be born into this family with all of the trappings that come with it and all of the opportunities and privileges that come, come with that. And so the kids who are growing up in inner city Toledo who have none of what you have, it's not because they're not talented, not because they're not able and smart. It's simply because of of the fact of where they were born. And it was that sort of mindset that he instilled in me from a very young age that kind of made me Always thinking about, always think about what other people did not have access to that I did. Uh, growing up through high school, um, I spent a lot of time uh, a high school boyfriend of mine's mother. I know. He didn't mean anything to me. Though. Uh, <laughs> She was an inner-city school teacher, and I remember volunteering in her classroom one day, and it was so different from anything that I had ever experienced that it it just sort of inspired me and kept me coming back. And so since that point, I was really uh, sort of captured by this thought of kids living in uh, under-resourced, less-privileged environments not having an equal chance in life just because of of the luck of their birth and I just thought it was the most un-American thing that you could possibly imagine (laughs)
0: That's great Um, How many of you saw uh, Michelle on Oprah back in November? Okay, that's pretty good (laughs) pretty good proportions I I, I can't ask a kind of a fun question What, what was the most interesting question she asked you?
1: What was the most interesting? So first, I'll give you a few tidbits about Oprah. Um,
0: oh, good. We're all looking forward to that.
1: She's really short. I, I, don't, know if you, I, I don't know if you'd ever sort of realize this, but uh, she's really short. And so when, the, when I was on the, the first time, she was sort of walking by and I almost didn't notice because she was really short. And she was carrying her uh, heels with her. That happened to be probably like six inches high. And so she came up and she, had and, uh, she sat down and she told the camera crew, she said, uh, she said these are my 10-minute shoes. I have 10 minutes in the shoes. And so uh, when she put them on, and they, they made her stand up to do a couple of, of, of shots. And, and she'd be standing there while they were getting the cameras ready. And she'd say, nine minutes.
0: <laughs> uh, eight
1: um, eight yeah, exactly. So that's my tidbit about Oprah. I, I think the, the most exciting thing about me being able to be on the show was just the fact that she it feels incredibly passionately about public education and she's decided to take this issue on. Uh, she said to me um, when I was on the show, and we were, they turned to a clip. Where the National Teachers Union president was, was speaking about something, she looked at me. She's mm, like, "That must have been interesting." Yeah, she said, "You're you going to get me in so much trouble," <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think I, I, I did, proceed to do that.
0: <laughs> that's why we want you here tonight. You may <laughs> may have a little bit of controversy as well. So, uh, well, that's that's fun. It's fun to, to, to hear about that. I didn't know she was that short. Uh, to say <laughs> the same thing about Tom Cruise. I don't know if you ever met met Tom Cruise. But. Uh, Mayor Johnson, let's, uh, we're eager also to hear about uh, the development of your values uh, as well. So can you say a little bit about uh, your upbringing and, and experiences or people in your life that uh, instilled in you uh, the values that, that then lead, led you to be committed to, uh, to government service and to public education as well?
2: Yeah, I grew up in the uh, Oak Park community not too far from here. And uh, I'm a product of public schools. I went to one elementary school, one middle school, one high school, and one public university. And what I had in my neighborhood in Oak Park that other kids did not have was a stability of a family environment. I lost my dad um, when I was three years old. He had drowned in the river. And my mom was a single parent. But my my grandparents uh, immediately stepped in. So I was the beneficiary of three parents. I had Mom, a grandmother, and a grandfather in the Oak Park community. And my grandfather was a sheet metal worker and very blue collar, strong work ethic, very Mm -hmm. structured. But the thing that I remember most about my grandfather was just this commitment of helping out in the community, being a good neighbor, making a difference uh, in the community. My grandmother on the other side was very gracious and she was a person that always made sure I, did thank you notes when you got a gift. And if I didn't do it, I'd have to sit at the table and couldn't eat or go out and play. So just the giving to the community and also being thankful and appreciating what you get um, were two very strong uh, influences for me as a young person. Um, I got a scholarship from Sacramento High School to UC Berkeley. And this is where Michelle and I differ a little bit. She went to private schools the majority of her life. I got to college. She was was over-prepared. And I got to college, and for the first time, I realized I was underprepared, that I did not get a good education growing up, where I thought I did. I got A's and B's the whole time. I actually skipped fifth grade. So I mean, how much smarter can you be than that? You skip the, I skipped the whole grade. So did you skip a grade? Look, I
1: have to tell this story. We OK, wait. wait.
2: Here, here's how this relationship works. <laughs>
1: We, we had, we had a, somebody throw an engagement party for us, and at the engagement party, they, they found t- sort of tidbits about each of us. So they would read the tidbit, and then the, the crowd would have to guess, was it him or me? And so the one, when they got to the, this one, they said, skip the fifth grade, and everyone yelled, Michelle! And he was like, no, it was me!
2: <laughs> so when I got to UC Berkeley, uh, I was in a freshman English class, And I remember uh, the teacher, the professor, asking these students a question, and the question was, you know, to the students, can you describe a euphemism? And there were 30 kids in the class, and all 29, all knew exactly what a euphemism was. And I was like, so I'm looking at my little course schedule, and like, am I in the right class? And it was Fresh English, you know, beginning, and I didn't know what a euphemism was. And I realized at that point in time that. I did not get the quality education that a lot of other people got up and down the state of California. And I made a commitment that if I was ever successful enough, I was going to go back to my community that I grew up in and not only make sure that kids knew what euphemism meant, but made sure that they had access to really good schools. And that's really what kind of brought us together, this commitment of trying to eradicate the inequalities that often occur in in public education. And when I got into the NBA my first year in the league, I knew I wanted to come back to Sacramento and, and do something in my neighborhood. And I figured I'd start an after-school program called St. Hope, committed to you know just education for young people in our community. And the reason why I started it is during the summer of my, freshman, my senior year of college and my first year in MBA, I realized when I went back to my community, all my friends were in jail, on drugs, or dead. And those who weren't dead had kids and you can see the cycle just starting to repeat itself over and over. So my whole commitment, and this is, in fact, why I ran for mayor, is I wanted to disrupt this cycle and to make sure that kids in underserved community have access to really good schools and do know what the word euphemism means. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that, that's a great story, very interesting. Uh, you know, what, one of the things that, that I think is so interesting about tonight and about having Kevin and Michelle here, is the, the individual stories that they have, uh, and all they've accomplished individually, yet separately, but also the, the dynamic and the chemistry between them, which we've already seen a little bit of. And um, uh, let, let me then move on to the, my next question, and that is, um, how do the two of you help each other be better leaders? Okay, so I, the, the motivation behind this is that uh, uh, my wife is a professional person as well and, uh, and, and an Asian woman, so I'm kind of partial. So, um, and she helps me a lot, actually, in, in, in my work, and, uh, and I help her. And I'm just curious about the conversations that the two of you have about different leadership or organizational change uh, issues that you might be uh, confronting, because in, in, in each other, you have an, an amazing coach to help each other in these. So, Michelle, what, what, what observations have you had in the way that the, the two of you have helped each other?
1: Um, I think that one, one way that we are very different and one way that what, that the mayor's helped me tremendously is I, I'm very impatient and I, I don't like uncertainty. And so my personality is such that when I'm faced with a situation, I want to make a decision very quickly and I want to move and then be done with it and then you know, move on to the next thing. So very, um, you know, one step after the other. And one of the things I think that he's helped me with is, is being okay with uncertainty a little bit more and taking a little bit more time. In making decisions, and it's not a it's a, not a natural thing for me. It makes me feel uncomfortable. But it, uh, I've had a, a number of situations where, it, you know, he's sort of said, "Okay, let's just wait a second and think for a little while." Mm. And, and you know, I'm sitting here like this, twitching, and uh, and and it turns out that the next day or the day after, something will come to one of us that we never would have thought of you know at that moment that that has allowed me to make a better decision and have a better outcome overall and so that that has been extraordinarily helpful to me
2: hmm. interesting kevin <laughs> uh, let's see i think that you know we really complement each other in many respects but it is pretty neat to be able to come home and at the end of the night you come together talking about what you both are so passionate about, which is education. So when she downloads her dance, it's about a topic I care a great deal about. And when I'm talking about my dance, usually about a topic she cares a great deal about, as long as I'm not talking about council meetings. Um, but I think where 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 she's been probably most helpful for me are, are two, two concrete things. We met in Washington, D.C. at a Teach for America conference. It was a 10 year, 15 year anniversary. And we ended up having a relationship. She ended up sitting on my board in Sacramento uh, for St. Hope. And I think most of you know the work and the success that we've had at Sac High and PS7, but she was a board member and she came in and she brought people to our board from around the country that would have not otherwise come to Sacramento. So her ability to attract talent and get people to buy into the mission that we had in Oak Park Um, was was very helpful and then the second thing which is a little bit funnier Uh she's saying you heard her say that she's impatient and I always get accused of being really impatient in Sacramento but (laughs) there's times I interview people and I say that's a really nice person they should make the next round and she's like no gotta go (laughs) and I'm thinking like well what do you mean are you you trying to hire a nice person or you want somebody who's gonna get results, is what she says. And I'm like, I want a nice person who can get results. That nice person is not going to get you results. So the, the point of it is, she has a really high bar on talent. And it gets into your organizational theme of change. It's really about attracting leadership, human capital at a really high level. And because she travels around the country, She's very impatient in terms of bringing people on board that she does not think can deliver at a really high level. That's no different in a business. You, need, you bet on a management team. You bet on leadership. Um, that has been her strength for me and been one that has allowed me to uh, be a little bit more, uh, I don't know What the right word is? You normally finish Discerning. my sentences. Discerning. Been a little more discerning in terms of who we bring on board. Thank you.
0: Well, that's a great transition to another question I wanted to ask, and that was really about um, human capital decisions, uh, choosing colleagues, team members, uh, other leaders, uh, and w- with an eye toward uh, people who are going to be your allies in uh, advancing the mission of your organization and Advancing organizational change uh, activities and, and efforts. So let so Michelle, can we can we explore a little bit more deeply? So it sounds like you you are very intuitive and you uh, have uh, are, are able to draw uh, judgments in in a, in a very efficient way. Are you are you able to reflect on how it is that you do that, and what are the criteria? that you tend to look at when you're making decisions about bringing someone on board?
1: So first you should know that over the 20 years of my career I've probably you know, recruited meaning hired and fired more people than most people ever will in a lifetime. That was what I, I did. My job was was hiring people because my I, I ran an organization called the New Teacher Project, and what we did was hired thousands and thousands of people a year mm-hmm. to teach in in, in uh, uh, public school districts across the country. So this is sort of my thing. My staff used to make fun of me that I would have the seven-minute interview, that I knew within seven minutes whether somebody was going to make it or not, and then. They'd say, could you just please be nice for the last 23 minutes of the interview and not make the person feel like you you knew exactly what was going to happen when they walked in the door. Um, I... I think some of it is intuitive, uh, but there are a couple of things that I look for in, in a- any position that I'm hiring for, from an office manager uh, all the way up through a, a president of a, an organization that I'm running, and that is um, one that we I need somebody who's very goal oriented, uh, somebody who is who is who measures their success based on measurable uh, goals, and um, also someone who can talk about how they have persevered through challenges to get on the other side Mm -hmm. so in my business nothing is easy Uh, you're going to have roadblocks everywhere and the extent to which a person can um, you know work beyond those roadblocks and constantly be thinking about a different angle to take is incredibly uh, important I think as a as a leader um I have many, many faults and things that I'm not good at, um, but one of the things that I think I, I am good at and, and um, is, is sniffing out talent. And I, I always am looking to hire people underneath me who are a lot smarter than I am. Uh, and because my job is not to be the smartest person in the room, my job is to block and tackle for all of the smart people so that they can do incredible work. And so one of the things I I always pride myself on is is finding people who are unbelievably talented uh, and and assembling a great team and then knocking down all the barriers so they can do their jobs.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's, that's great. Uh, Those are fascinating reflections. And it resonates with me because I think my job is to ensure that other people can do their jobs and flourish in their jobs. So uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. So, um, Kevin, what, what about your thoughts when, when you're, we already talked a little bit about how you see things differently, but um, what are your thoughts and what are your criteria when you think about bringing someone uh, on board your, uh, your team and your organization, and is there anything specific about uh, uh, being in government service that, say, differs from what Michelle does in her work in public education, or are things really more generic and there are more commonalities across those
2: I think there's situations. a lot of commonalities. And I think, you know, again, for me, thinking about our discussion today, you know, I want to think about, like, what are my core beliefs and my core values? And, and my, my four or five are, one, um, I believe that every kid is special. I don't care who it is. That's a core belief I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one would be, be um, I have a, a, a tremendous... You know, a goal to really focus on results, so very result oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, another one would be a uh, relentless pursuit of excellence, uh, you know, just that commitment of excellence. Another, I'm a fanatic uh, about details. You know, things need to be done uh, a certain way, and that's really important um, to me. So when I think about hiring people, I want people that embrace those core values. Mm-hmm. And because I played sports in my other life, um, I want somebody who's competitive. I want somebody who's got great energy and is very competitive. They know what the goal is. They know how to play and be a part of a team. And they want to be held accountable for what outcomes, whatever those are. And when you think about, you know, in, in business school, you have, you know, the three, you know, the triangle of success. You have relationships, results, and process. Mm-hmm. I can give a, what? Um, a
0: diagram. Who? A
1: diagram.
2: I don't care a whole lot about process. Oh. <laughs> so I'm really focused on results. But as an elected official, relationships is so important. So I've had to learn to you know, is, is temper my commitment for results, or at least find a way to make that compatible with this, this notion of relationships um, to get to where we need to be. So at the end of the day, you know, I think my job is to articulate a shared vision And then have people who believe in those goals, deeply invest in those goals, can take a plan, execute it, and are gonna constantly reassess on whether or not we're getting there. But it's really about accountability. If people don't want to be held accountable, it's just not gonna work. You know, we're not ones where we don't make excuses for what we do. If it works out, you know, you pat you pat each other in the back and you give somebody else credit. And if it doesn't work out, you say I didn't do my job well enough. And that's the kind of people you wanna work with on a regular basis.
1: He, he is much more of an optimist. He, 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 he does. He, he, he has this incredible belief in people. That he, he wants to believe the best in people. And so it's interesting because we'll have you know conversations all the time where somebody will have messed up however many times and then they'll come to him and have this big story about how going forward it's going to be different. And he'll come out and say, okay, yes. And I'm like, are you kidding, honey? Because for me, it's sort of, you know, cut your losses and and you you move on. And, uh, you know, for him, he just wants to believe that what that person is saying is really going to turn everything around. Um, But that's one of the things that that I actually appreciate most about him. He is such an optimist. He, he He so sort of believes... In, in people's desire to want to do well that he kind of cre- wants to create an environment where, you know, everyone can be successful,
2: too. Steve, tell her what your mom said about you growing up being liked. <laughs> this is funny.
1: So, <laughs> my first year on the job in D.C., uh, in the first 100 days, we decided to close... 23 schools, and it was um, literally. I mean, if you want to become the most unpopular person in a city really quickly, all you have to do is say you're closing a school, much less 23. It had never been done at that scale before, and uh, so uh, you know, we announced we were going to do this, and, and the city went ballistic. And uh, so my mother was there during during all of this, and uh, you know, one day she sort of you know wakes up and she opens the newspaper. There's a two two page spread with a map of the city pinpointing all of the schools that I was closing. She turns on the uh, TV, and, you know, there are people picketing outside of my office and, you know, yelling and screaming at me. And so I came home that night after all these community meetings at 11 o'clock at night. She's like, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm fine. She said, you know, it's so interesting. When you were young, you never cared what other people thought about you. And I always thought that you were going to grow up to be antisocial. <laughs> she said, I see now that this is serving you well. <laughs> um, so <laughs> that that's just a little insight into, into the way that my particular brain works. I guess I've always been that way though.
2: <laughs>
0: Fascinating. Fascinating. So one of the topics that uh, I'm I'm personally interested in 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 my research is uh, the role of trust in the workplace and trust in leaders. So um, what what are your reflections uh, on how to build trust, how to maintain trust, uh, how to repair trust if if, if trust is, is, is damaged? So what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts about that, Michelle?
1: So um, my my good friends and I have a saying. We always say to each other, "Trust is the basis of any relationship," um, and I think that's absolutely right. You have you have to have faith and trust. Uh, it, it, it was interesting because as I was working uh, in in the job uh, in DC, oftentimes people would um, you know come and say, "Well." you know, we don't believe in you. We don't believe that you're, you know, you want the right things, X, Y, and Z. And I said, great, you know what? You should probably go somewhere else and work then. Because I don't think that anyone ever wants to be in a position where they are working for someone that they don't have full faith and confidence and trust in. Now, that doesn't mean you have to agree with everything that the person, you know, agrees with or, or, or believes or anything like that. But you fundamentally have to trust folks uh, and, and believe in, in the people that you're working for. Um, I, I think that in D.C., one of the, uh, we, we sort of fell into this trap of um, uh, underestimating the power that the media had in what we were doing every day. So we were operating, we sort of put our noses down, we sort of thought, okay, if we, if we are doing the right things and, and producing results, then people will you know, see those results and like them and want more. But what we underestimated was the fact that there, was, uh, there were sort of these stories that would come up in the media all of the time, and you know they, would, they were often sort of about the conflict and the controversy and, and that sort of thing. And we used to read those things oh, like, no oh, no one's, no one's really going to believe that. Um, and, and we didn't do a good job of actually sending out any kind of different messages. Mm-hmm. So then the messages that the sort of media was creating or the dynamics that they were creating were the ones that stuck mm-hmm. in people's heads. And that was, that was a shortcoming on our side and my side as a, as a leader, because I was sort of, we kind of abdicated responsibility of the communications to, to the media and we did not proactively go out and communicate with our employees on a regular basis to say, actually, that's not what the story, this is, this is what we're trying to do, and this is why we're doing the things that we're doing. And repeating that message over and over again, we, we very much underestimated just the, the, the power of that communication or the lack thereof. And so, um, you know, whenever people ask me, well, you know, what, what would you do again or what advice would you give to people who are trying to do what you're trying to do, you know, my biggest piece of advice is is that the, when, when you're talking about the kinds of change that we were trying to enable uh, in, the, in the district, which was really transformational change, it was a sea change, that it, it, you, you have to have very clear very consistent and constant communication out about what it is that you're doing, why you're doing it, and what you're hoping to accomplish through those actions.
2: Mayor? Yeah, I'll, I'll just build on what she's saying. When you think about how many students in here are part of the MBA program here at UC Davis? So you guys are, you guys are all reading about this or you read about it. I mean, there's different kind of leaders, and I feel like I'm more into the transformational leader category that's kind of my mentality the aspiration the vision and taking on a challenge and part of it is you have to attract people that also want that environment it's a little more entrepreneurial high risk high reward um that's not for everybody so now that I'm in the public sector environment it's the opposite of that you know it's it's process it's about consensus it's about Uh, Let's plan the plan and then plan a little more and then talk about the plan and then put the plan on a shelf and then start all over. And then there's a new election cycle and then you pull the plan off. and, And that's just a different environment when you want results. And so when I think about my work as an athlete, first of all, and I'll give two, as an athlete, when you play good team defense, you cannot in the NBA guard a player by yourself. They're just too good. You rely on your teammate to help you. So you commit to a system that if I force a guy left, my teammate is going to help out. That's a commitment that you have to have, which gets to trust. You can't do it as a single person. Mm -hmm. So if you fast forward to the school environment, going back to being a transformational leader, if you lay out on the front end what you expect and what you're trying to do, that will attract people and they want to do that. And it's very clear on the front end. So let me give you an example. If we say we're willing to take on the status quo and we're gonna start a new organization uh, from the ground up, if you don't have an entrepreneurial spirit, if you don't realize that every day is gonna be a little different, it's not predictive, um, if you want a stable environment, then that's not the right environment for you. So when when we lay out for teachers thinking about just commitment of trust, we tell teachers that you're not going to be a normal teacher in this environment. You have to be more than a teacher because when you're in an underserved community, you're gonna to have to work longer hours, you're gonna have longer school days, you're gonna to have to take your cell home at night. Now, if you don't wanna do that, then this is not the school for you. Mm-hmm. Most teachers say they wanna do it, and some do it for about two weeks, and are like, I don't wanna do this. Mm-hmm. But at least we were forthright and very clear on what the expectation was in the very beginning. What that does, though, It starts to create an environment that people feel like you have been in the trenches together, because you're doing more, you're working harder, you're challenged, your mountain is steeper. That attracts a certain mindset of people, and I think when you're a transformational leader, those are the people and the challenges that you want, and that trust um, is critically important to accomplish anything. So whether you're playing sports, whether you're running schools like we have done in the past, or even in the public sector, I'm still trying to figure out how to do it there. I haven't quite figured it out yet, but we're working on it.
0: I'm I'm interested in how the two of you have dealt with the inertia of the organizations in which you run. How do you and and Michelle, you were talking about the influence of the media and and how that was very strong and somewhat relentless. So How how do you avoid those forces sort of rubbing the edges off of you in a, in a negative way, where you start to lose your energy, where you start to lose your, your commitment. And, and do you ever, do you, do you consciously have to think about resisting those, those forces that sort of sap you from your, sap your energy and your commitment and your entrepreneurial focus from you?
2: Let, let me give the context, and then you can feel free to answer the question. Is that okay? Got to get permission. So, <laughs> Dean, we were in Aspen, Colorado together a um, month after we met. And you had the top reformers at the Aspen Institute, 40 of them in a room. And we all were on the outside of the public sector. We ran nonprofits and different organizations. You had Arnie Duncan at the time, who was in charge of, uh, you know, schools in, in Chicago before he became Secretary of Education. Mm-hmm. Cory Booker was a council member, the founder of Teach for America, the founder of KIPP Schools. We're all in the room. And these are the top reformers in the country. And we met for three days, and we talked about how we're gonna change the world. And at the end of three days, it became very clear that we were just gonna go back to our respective communities and keep doing what we were doing, but not really change the world. Mm-hmm. And And I remember I got a chance to make a closing comment. And my closing comment was, if people in this room really wanna make a change, we should do two things. One of us should go back and become a superintendent or a chancellor inside the system. Because you gotta take the things you do in the private sector that work and take those, this system can't change itself from within. You needed to take folks on the outside and put them inside. So that was a chancellor or a superintendent and somebody else needed to go back and become a mayor of their city. The irony of that discussion, she and I were the ones that did did that. She went and became a chancellor in D.C., and I became a mayor, and I think she can get out a little bit of why we think that's important, especially in terms of consensus, which I'll let you kind of throw out here.
1: Um, you know, when I, when I uh, started my job in D.C., about probably, I don't know, five or six weeks in, Uh, I remember I was driving home one night, it was raining, and uh, my cell phone rang and I I looked at my phone and it was a call from Joel Klein, who was the Mm -hmm. chancellor of the New York City Public Schools at the time, and he was the one who had uh, uh, referred me to the mayor of D.C. So he'd sort of gotten me into the whole uh, job to begin with. So I pulled over to the side of the road and I pick up the phone and he says, uh, okay, Michelle, I am going to give you two pieces of advice. I said, okay, let her rip. And the first thing he said, he said, so first of all, do you have a boyfriend? <laughs> and I said, no, well, I don't. At the time, I didn't. And he said, okay, uh, so my first piece of advice is go out and get one. <laughs> <clears throat> and I said, sir. And he said, because let me just tell you that this job is the loneliest job you could possibly imagine. Mm. And unless you have someone at home every night that you come, uh, come home to at the end of the night who says to you, Honey, you're not the crazy one. They're the crazy ones. You're just fine. He said, unless you have that kind of emotional support every night when you go home, you're never going to make it. So go get yourself a dating life. That was the first thing that he said. And uh, I never thought in my entire life that I would be getting love life advice from Joel Klein, but there I was. And So after that, I said, okay, so what's the second piece of advice? And he said, the second piece of advice is you have to lead from the front. And he said it in such a definitive way that I said okay thank you sir and I hung up the phone and I get back on the road and I'm like I have no idea what that means I had no idea what that guy's talking about and it wasn't actually until a few months later that I was going through the whole school closure process where literally people would be picketing outside my office every day everyone on the tv radio you name it was sort of criticizing me and uh and I realized that that uh, you know this is this is what he was talking about because um A year after uh, all the school closures were done, a woman came up to me uh, at a community meeting and she she said, do you remember me? Look, she said, I was the one that was always yelling at you all the time with the school closures. You said, which one? I I was was like, oh, no, I remember you. And she said, I just wanted you to know that you were right. I couldn't see it at the time because it was such an emotional process and we didn't want the school to close. But you you were right. We're in a better school now. We have more resources. The kids are getting a better education. So good job. And I thought... Okay. See, so uh, I, I realize that leading from the front means that if you get mired in, in, in sort of the, you know, trying to make everybody happy all of the time and trying to keep the noise levels to a minimum, the likelihood that you're actually going to move anything is not high. Sometimes you have to be able to see things that other people can't see maybe at that point, but you know it's the right thing to do. You have to get out in front and you have to lead people to that. And eventually, if you're, doing, you're making the decisions for the right reasons, then people will come along to that. Um, and, and so, you know, f- f- I think in, in, any, in any situation where you're, you're trying to really crack open uh, things that, that have been in place for a long, long time, change doesn't come easy. It's, it, you know, as much as people say they want change, it's only until you actually start to change their lives and they're like, wait, wait, wait. Not so much. Um, and so, you know, when you're in the middle of that, realizing that there's something on the other side um, and, and so kind of keeping your, your core of what you know is good and right um, is, is important.
2: I think you have to... You remember year two speech that you wanted to give?
1: About consensus. <laughs> yeah.
2: tell, tell him that real quick.
1: <laughs> so he's going to get me in trouble.
2: You're in Sacramento. It's better you get in trouble than me. <laughs>
1: So he's, he, he it was I was uh, after my first year on the job uh, for for one year I sort of had given my, my standard stump speech and um, and I was heading into year two of the job and I was just, I sort of thought okay well I have to change up my speech I can't, give the, can't continue to give the same speech over and over again he said so well just think about your first year and what your you know your biggest lessons were. And, and then just you know, give a speech about that. And so i was trying to think about okay, what, what are my biggest lessons learned? And and the sort of first thing that came to my head was, <laughs> consensus and collaboration cooperation is overrated. So I uh, decided to try it out, and I, I gave my first speech of the second year, and I was like, consensus, collaboration, cooperation are overrated. And then that was all that was in the media the next day. Recess, collaboration, overrated. But, but what, I, what I actually meant by that was that in, in, in the public schools, collaboration became the end game. Right. So what, what everybody became focused on was, how can we all get along and all the, keep all the adults happy? And it was this, it, it created this environment where literally, when I, when I started in D.C. in 2007, 8% of our 8th graders in the city schools were on grade level in mathematics, 8%. If you were to have looked at the performance evaluations of the adults in the system at the same time, you'd have seen that 95% of the adults were being rated as doing an excellent job. How can you have a system where all of the adults are running around thinking they're doing great work when what we're producing for kids is 8% success? Mm-hmm. And it was because the culture and the environment was such that we all wanted to feel good about ourselves. We want to pat each other on the back. Aren't we doing a good job? Right? It and was so, totally
0: about process.
1: Yeah, so totally. uh, all of the adults were happy with the system, even though it was completely failing kids. And that's that, that was my point, was that you know we can all get along. And, and in my mind, we, we, for far too long in public education, have been willing to turn a blind eye to what is happening every day to children in classrooms in the name of harmony amongst adults. Mm-hmm. And that has to stop. We have to be OK with adults feeling a little uncomfortable with things so that we can actually change the system and provide kids with what they deserve.
0: So just to add on to that, we, we know from research literature that there is a a functional, a functional amount of conflict. You can either have too little conflict, which is the situation you're describing, or too much, of course, and either one is, is, is pathological to the organization. So it's very interesting to, to hear your experience. Uh, Kevin, your, your thoughts thoughts on, you're you're obviously a very energetic entrepreneurial mayor, but there are pressures that must come to bear that that make it more difficult on you to retain that energy and that spirit. So are you mindful of those, and do you have a uh, mechanism for resisting that kind of pressure?
2: Yeah, I mean, again, thinking about your audience, especially the students that are in business school, If you get involved in public sector, it's just different rules of the game. It's not the same that you would do in the private sector. You don't have the ability to be super entrepreneurial, make a decision and go for it, and look at the bottom line. It's about process, it's about relationships, it's about how many people did you talk to. It's often about making somebody else feel like it's their idea um, so they can own it and feel good about it. And that's just not something that I was used to. It was like, you know, I played team sports. The goal is to make everybody around you better, but you want to win. Um, one simple example. This is how simple basketball was. In the NBA, when I played for the Phoenix Suns, we had our goal at the beginning of the season was just this: win 15 playoff games. That was it.
0: Does that mean you're champs if you win. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. It's just
2: that simple. If you win 15 playoff games, that's all you need. So everything we did in training camp, in preseason, in November and December was all working toward. Mm -hmm. a playoff where you need to win the 15 games if you won three in the first round four in the second four and four that would make you an nba champ Mm -hmm. so when you had conflict amongst your teammates or people who Mm -hmm. didn't want to go along with the program our coach would say is that going to help us win 15 games Mm -hmm. in the playoffs and at that point you realize everything else doesn't really matter Mm -hmm. well in the public sector it doesn't To her point, it's not even about results half the time. That's been the most frustrating part. You know, I ran for mayor because I want Sacramento to be a cool city. I want it to reach its potential. I want streets to be safe and good schools and create jobs and all those things that we believe so strongly in. The results at the end of the day are not what drive the decisions that we make in the city of Sacramento. And that was to me probably the most profound lesson I've learned in the two years that I've been mayor. You
1: know, I I warned him of this. When, 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 when he told me he was thinking about running for mayor, this was before we were started to see each other and, and we were just friends and he said, I'm thinking about doing this. And I said, are you crazy? This is, this is so not what you want to do, given your personality. Because he's very results oriented he wants to just make a decision and, and, and have it you know carried out and then go. And uh, that's not how government works. And so when he first told me that he wanted to do this I thought, there's, there's there's nothing, no job that is sort of a worse fit for, for your personality than 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 that. Um, but she's right. I, but I no, but I tell you, like, what what drives him so much is he loves this city. He loves Sacramento. I mean, you know, he, he'll tell you the stories about how, you know, people teased him all the time when they'd come to Sacramento in the NBA It was one of the worst cities to go to and all. He loves Sacramento. He wants the city to reach its potential, and so that's where he gets his energy every day. I mean, re- despite the fact that he's not able to necessarily do all the things that he wants to do on the time frame that he wants to do it on, he, he, his energy is sort of endless for wanting to just, you know, make the city the best it can be.
0: So he has a very clear superordinate goal that dominates his behavior and his actions, even if the organization in which he operates does not have a single
2: superordinate goal. Definitely. And in my job in year two and three now is to try to figure out how to get eight other council members to participate in this shared vision Mm -hmm. with key priorities with performance matrix that lead to results that are more important. Than pro- and we're making progress, but mm-hmm. that's just not what I expected. I thought it would be an entirely different, but I was clearly wrong. And once again, she was right. But
0: <laughs> So um, uh, I'm, I'm interested in, as, as Michelle, as you look at uh, reforming public education and public school districts and and Kevin, as you think about our region and trying to take it forward, and you, and you both think about organizational change, how do you decide what to change and what to leave alone? Because you can't change everything. Some things you have to leave in place, and how do you differentiate between what has to be left in place... Versus what to go after and really uh, allocate your, your time and effort to. So, which, how do you decide which levers to pull and which to leave alone? Uh,
1: that's a good question. I, when I, and, and one that we faced when, when I took over the school system in DC because everything was broken. Literally everything needed to be fixed. And so the question was wh- what, what do you do and, and how and when? And for me, the sort of primary um, thinking that we went through is okay there's an order of operation so for example, lots of people would say to me, "Well, how come you never tried to lengthen the school day? Why you were so focused on teacher quality you know and, and making sure that, mm-hmm. the, that you had the right teachers and principals in place why didn't you why didn't you try to extend the, the amount of time that kids were in school And I would say, well because." You, you, you have to make sure that what's happening in the classroom is good first because more crappy teaching is not going to help any kids. Right? So you have to make sure you've got the right people doing the right things in the classroom first and then more of that is going to have a benefit. But if you if you try to pull the wrong levers, you know, or in the in the wrong order, it's it's actually not going to produce the results that you need. And so part of what we had to think through was what was that what's that order of operation? Um, and and I think that's you know when you're talking about systems that are as as you know wholly dysfunctional as the one that we saw, it was a it was a it was a careful balance between seeing you know as much change as you wanted to on a quick enough time frame, but not, you know, disrupting the entire system so that people couldn't actually operate or didn't know, uh, you know, what, what, was, what was happening or what was expected of them.
0: So, um, Kevin, what, what are your thoughts in terms of how you prioritize? What do you, what do you go after versus what do you leave alone in terms of effectuating change?
2: I think looking at it from a regional standpoint, I think was was partly your question. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my challenges, I would go back to Washington, I would hear where the president would want to go and where his agenda was. And I'd come back and I'd realize that no one in our region heard it. So, one of the things I had to do in year two is bring more people out so they can hear. It's like going on a field trip, exposure, getting experience. So that when I started talking about a vision or where we would go, people would say, Yes, I heard it, I see where we're trying to go. So when President Obama said that during this economic, you know, challenges that we're having, if you want stimulus dollars in your community, those communities that work together as a region are going to get more dollars. Well, when I was able to come back and then bring people out and then they heard it, it made sense for our, it was in our self-interest as a region to create a regional economy, to collaborate as a region. And then you come up with a couple proof points that our region understands that we'll be much better and much stronger working as a region. Um, That was something that was easy to do um, after the president said it. The other point was I realized that Sacramento, when you think about our region, we're looked at as the bully because we're the big capital city and whatever we do in Sacramento, we usually do it without respect to the other cities. So one of the things I had to do early on is go out to whether it be Woodland or Winters or Yuba or Roseville, go out to those communities and say, you know, I don't have the answer. What's important to you and how can we work together? So I'm doing all the things that Michelle says she's not a big fan of, which is consensus, cooperation and collaboration. I realize that in this public sector, it just will not work without doing those types of things. So you gotta find a balance, that's been my challenge, but it's also been very rewarding. You know, my my personality is more executive. I wanna make a decision and get something done. You gotta be legislative as well, uh, especially in our governance structure, the one we have. And I think as a region, we've made a lot of strides you know, with your help and the GreenWise initiative. If we look at Davis as being a separate city on the other side of the causeway, our region loses. But if we look at the Sacramento region to include Davis and El Dorado and Roseville and Elk Grove, we are so much stronger um, when we fight um, as a region. And I think you've seen a lot of that progress um, in the last couple years because we've, there's not one initiative that I've done uh, in the last two years, it has not been a regional initiative. And I think council members and mayors in some smaller cities have appreciated that because they've been able to contribute in a real way.
0: No, I think you've been very successful at that, actually. And I've, I've heard you uh, repeat that theme over and over again. We certainly saw that in GreenWise because uh, you reached out to the entire region, and we did feel like it was, it was a broader regional uh, effort. And I, I think that's a very wise tactical thing to do because – you're in a situation where you have very little, you cannot rely on hierarchy in the way that you deal with Roseville. I mean, you you don't really have any authority or jurisdiction over that. You have to use influence and and pull them along and help. And as you were saying before, bring people say to Washington to help them catch the vision, to educate them about the vision to, to order to try to to, to get people to converge with you on, on that vision. So I, I think you've done that incredibly well, and I think it's been received very well by the entire region.
2: Dean, can I say one thing for your, your students here? I think it's important. So as much as I'm trying to collaborate, cooperate, and create consensus, at the end of the day, sometimes you do still have to put your foot down. So let me give you an example. The GreenWise initiative was called GreenWise Sacramento.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And people around the region didn't want to call it Sacramento. <laughs> so then I had to put on my other hat at that point and, 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 and get people to understand that you may not like it, but this is the Sacramento region. And if you want to go back to Washington, if we have a no-name region, it's not going to mean a whole lot to folks. But if our region is the capital of California, it would serve us well. So in that room full of, say, 50 people, we might have had two-thirds of the people supportive mm-hmm. and a third not, and that was okay. So I guess to the students out here, you're not always gonna get everybody exactly where you want, but at least if it's founded in being fair and listening and rationale and logic that people can appreciate, um, that's still enough. You know, Sometimes a majority plus one is, is enough to get things done.
0: Well, that's the balance, the balance between uh, cooperating and partnering and those, things. but at some point decisions have to be made. And you have to exert leadership. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us
1: online at uctv.tv.